Well, then, let's uh, turn to Daniel chapter 1 again on page 1018. Daniel chapter 1 and the opening uh, two verses of the chapter. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now we set uh, the scene for studying the book of Daniel last Lord's Day. We did it by looking at Babylon and what the city represents in the Bible. It isn't simply a historical city, although it is that. It has a particular significance in the Bible. It began, you remember, as the first city built after the flood. It was built by a rebel, a rebel against God called Nimrod. At its heart was the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babylon, and its purpose was to exalt man and not God. So the city was a, a rallying point, a focal point for a, an anti-God rebellion. So Babylon in Scripture doesn't just represent idolatry uh, simply. It represents the greatest of all idolatries, which is the idolatry of man, humanism, which is putting man in the place of God. Um, it's significant, as I mentioned last week, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar oversaw the rebuilding of the Tower of Babel, and it would have been probably the first thing Daniel and his friends saw when they entered the city. Now, when um, we think of uh, Babylon like that, I want us to keep thinking about it like that all the way through the book. You've got this perpetual conflict between the city of man and the city of God, Babylon and Jerusalem. And it continues right throughout the Bible until the very end. In Revelation 18, you have the final destruction of Babylon. It still exists, in other words. And then you have the new Jerusalem of God coming down from heaven to inhabit the new heaven and the new earth. So let's keep that in mind. Uh, humanism and the worship of Jehovah, the great conflict. Now, as we turn to the book of Daniel, um, Babylon is coming to the zenith of its power. The year is 605 BC. When I say that, these things are now easy to date. Uh, evidence is so widespread for so many of the things that Daniel mentions in his book. Uh, most of these discoveries are fairly recent. For example, the eunuch Ashpenaz in verse 3, well, his name has been discovered on tablets and so on. It's the kind of thing you can search out yourself. Just put it in Google. You'll be astonished at the amount of information that's been corroborated in recent history. 
So the year is 605 BC, and it's a very significant one for Babylon. The king's son, at this point, uh, that's Nebuchadnezzar, he's distinguished himself in military campaigns, and he has just crushed the power of Egypt at a battle called the Battle of Carchemish, which is very important archaeologically and historically. But he had hardly returned from the battle that year when his father died, and he came to the throne, and he began a long and, well, politically illustrious reign, which saw Babylon rise, as I said, to the zenith of its power. So it's just beginning here in 605. Interestingly enough, pretty much his first act after coming to power is to turn towards Judah and to besiege it. Now, that was hardly because Judah was the most important uh, country in the world, um, but it was troublesome, and it had a tendency to change allegiance quickly, sometimes to support the Egyptians. God's word was telling them not to seek these political alliances, but they were doing it all the time, or at least the evil kings were doing it all the time. Judah, of course, as, as you'll see from a map, was always strategically important. I mean, there it is at a critical nexus between east and west. It's there between Egypt uh, to, to the southwest and, of course, Babylon to the northeast. So he comes and he besieges the city in the same year in which he assumed the throne. 605 BC. Now, the siege doesn't last very long. Um, Of course, it's the beginning of a process, because within 20 years, uh, the whole of Jerusalem will be deported, and the temple crushed, and the city destroyed. But you couldn't see that at the beginning. Well, Jeremiah could, uh, but nobody else could. The siege didn't last very long, because he got what he wanted very, very quickly. Three results. First of all, the king of Judah, King Jehoiakim, surrenders immediately. And from that point onwards in 605, he becomes effectively what you would call a puppet king. He just does the will of his master in Babylon. The second event that year, um, accompanying that siege, as well as the king giving in, is the temple vessels being taken away to Babylon. Now, you're not to think of a few cups and plates here. Ezra tells us, uh, nearly a century later, when the vessels came back to the Holy Land, that there were around about five and a half thousand of them, and they were all gold and silver. So this was really important, significant treasure that was taken away to Babylon. Why it's important and significant, we'll see in a moment. The third thing that happens in connection with the siege is something that Nebuchadnezzar practiced all the time. Um, Alexander the Great did it a few years afterwards too when he became effectively ruler of the world. He, whenever he went into another nation, he took away the cream of the youth. Those who were privileged, educate, educated, usually connected with royalty, or in this case, the priesthood, uh, law. And he would take them from the age of about 14 to 18, and he would take them back to Babylon. 
he'd subject them to a, a good brainwashing to make them effectively very powerful and able civil servants in his own administration. Now, the effect of that was twofold. I mean, when, when he did that to a place like Judah, first of all, it weakened the other country. You can imagine that. Uh, the best have gone. And very often it was mediocrity that arose to take their place. It also demoralized the conquered country. Uh, the message was given, you see, when they saw these vessels coming out of the temple and when they saw the best of the young men and sometimes young women taken away, there was a sense of defeat. Babylon is greater than Jerusalem. Humanism rules over theism. Humanism will take your brightest and your best Humanism will teach and train them. They'll take them out of your hands, out of the church of God, and they will begin to fight on the other side. Now, sometimes, of course, praise God, eh, that fails. It fails because God is gracious. And God is actually going to use uh, these four men <laughs> to effect a kind of spiritual revolu revolution in Babylon. So it sometimes does fail, but I want you to remember that it often succeeds too. That's the great humanistic mission. It's to take you, a child of God by inheritance, baptized, and to turn you, turn your thinking, to turn your heart in another direction altogether. And that succeeds when we're not vigilant in Jerusalem, when we don't consider our privileges and value them, when we don't live up to our responsibilities, we lose our people and Babylon gains the ascendancy. More of that later. But amongst these young people taken away, we're introduced right away to these four young men because they are chosen for special service in the king's court. They have qualities that are really admired in Babylon. Physically, no blemish. The human body was admired, as it is very much today. Again, there are reasons for that. It specified that they were good-looking, so they had no, no deformity, negatively but positively. They were very good-looking. Mentally, we're told they were knowledgeable. They were also wise, and they were what the word conveys, quick mentally. Yeah, they were agile. They could think on their feet. They could speak well. Now, significantly, at this point, there's no mention of God. The reason there's no mention of God is because Nebuchadnezzar is not interested in God. As far as he's concerned, he is God. And Babylon is the only city that matters. So he's looking for these human attributes. Now, God has just equipped these four men with these attributes, but they're not the most important thing about these men. And this is the kind of stuff that Babylon admires. This is the kind of stuff that Babylon's newspapers and Babylon's culture admires. Uh, but it's not what's most important about Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. They are God's young men. They worship and serve the Lord. They have a strength of character 
that comes from being worshippers of the true God. They are Christians. But that's not mentioned right now. Now, these men are very, very young. I think most people would place them around 15 to 18. And over the next um, few weeks, I want us to look at the pressure that they were put under and how they responded to it. I'm sure you can guess right away that that pressure was really intense. I mean, they're absolutely dislocated from everything they've ever known and valued and loved and set in a totally alien culture that is completely hostile to everything that they hold dear. And they're very, very young. Um, I mean, none of that is new. We think we're the first generation maybe to confront uh, living in a kind of Babylon. Well, of course we're not. You may have something like this if you've come from a certain kind of home, a certain kind of situation, and you find yourself in the city of Glasgow, and you're confronted with opportunities and pressures and teachings that you simply weren't exposed to at home or where you came from. It's quite possible anyway. That's the kind of dislocation that we're talking about here. But before we look at the pressures, how the pressure was applied to Babylonianize them and how they resisted that pressure, I want actually to take a little step behind that, first of all, and to ask with you, how did they actually cope with the trauma of exile period? Before the pressure was applied, how did they make sense of what was actually happening to them as young men? And I think this is where the name of the book itself becomes important. The name of the book is Daniel. That's the name of the leading prophet. The name of a book is very important. I'm sure you know, we've often seen how important names are generally in the Bible, but um, the names of the prophets are very revealing. (coughs) For example, Elijah's name means Jehovah is God. And interestingly, Uh, You could say that the pinnacle of his life came on the top of Mount Carmel in the confrontation with the prophets of Baal when the people eventually proclaimed what? The Lord, he is God. Jehovah, he is God. In other words, his life uh, found its meaning there and his name carried that meaning. Jehovah is God. Malachi means my messenger. And you'll discover that Malachi's prophecy is centered around God's messenger. That is Christ who is coming to his own temple. Zechariah means God remembers. And that's right at the heart of the book and so on. Now we expect the same thing here. I mean, we saw last week the importance of the name Babel, Babylon, which means confusion because humanistic humanism is confused at the end of the day. But here, right at the title of this book, we're led to the heart of what it's about. Daniel means God is my judge. God is my judge. And everything in the book revolves around God being the judge of his people. Now, to appreciate that fully, I want you to note something. 
The word judge in the Hebrew and in the Bible doesn't really mean uh, what we mean by judge. It means much more than that. We use it in a narrower sense. We use it in the sense of arbitration, uh, judging something. But in the Hebrew, it means much more than that. To judge means two things. Um, It means, first of all, to rule. To rule. And second, it means to protect. That's derivative from the first. In other words, the rule is with a view to protection. When we speak of God being the judge, in other words, what primarily comes before us is not so much the idea, tremendous and awful as it is, of of God pronouncing a final judgment, which he will do, but what comes before us primarily is God ruling over his people and protecting them. Ruling over his people and protecting them. Showing mercy to his own and restraining and conquering our enemies and his own enemies, restraining them and conquering them. In other words, it's pretty much the idea of kingship. God is my judge, ruling and protecting. God is my king. And I want, what I want you to notice right away here is that this sovereignty of God comes immediately before us, very starkly in verse 2. Well, verse 1 reads just like a straightforward news narrative that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. But verse 2 tells us that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand and some of the articles of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar. Now, I mentioned like a news narrative. If Let's, let's suppose you had wall-to-wall Uh, 24-7 news uh, then as you had today, you would switch on your television set and there would be breaking news and that is that the dictator of Babylon has advanced towards Judah and besieged the city. Now in some ways maybe it would not be all that important except um, some people would be concerned that this character was beginning to flex his muscles too much but it's a small country. It would be rather akin to uh, Saddam Hussein, who saw himself as Nebuchadnezzar's successor when he moved into Kuwait, and that was behind the first Iraqi war. Now, to be quite honest, um, if it wasn't for things like oil and so on, I don't know if there would have been the same international fuss about it. Kuwait is very small. It was always considered a part of Iraq, and it wouldn't have made much impact, except that people would be a bit worried as to where he would go next. That's really all that's happening here. A powerful king is nudging towards a small country. So what? It happens all the time. But the Bible puts it differently, you see. The Bible tells us that God did it. God did it. It tells us in the book of Jeremiah and in the book of Second Chronicles, it tells us that God actually took the Babylonians down from the north Here it tells us that the siege ended this way because God said so. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand and some of the articles of the house of God which then Nebuchadnezzar carried into the land of Shinar. At one level, what I'm saying is straightforward enough. I suppose what I'm saying is that all history, as the saying goes, is his story. 
history, his story. It's all about God. It's all directed by God too. He is immanent with an A, not an E, in the history of the world. He's involved in it. The rise and fall of nations is entirely in the hand of God. I mean, you see things happening. You see Donald Trump becoming president of America. You see uh, the ruler of North Korea and so on, and he fires his rockets over Japan. These things are happening. How, how many people relate that to God? Just wonder how many. How, how many related to God? The fact that these people are in power or why they're in power. But it's all to do with God, you see. Psalm 75 tells us that, that he raises up one and he casts another down. There's a cup of wine of powerful blend and he pours it out. That's his judgments and they must drink it to the end. I mean, he's in charge of promotion and demotion. He's in charge of exaltation and humiliation. Does anything happen on the earth without the Lord doing it? No, nothing. Nothing at all in the realm of history and politics and science and so on. He's in charge of it all. On another level, it's very difficult to understand what happens here. Very difficult. This is God's land. This is God's people. This is a people in covenant with God. This is the only people who officially, officially recognize Jehovah in their worship. This is the people who possess the temple. This is the people who possess a priesthood. This is the people who possess the word of God. This is the people who look to God to keep them, to rule over them, to protect them. That God would be their judge and God would be their king. And here comes this godless man, this arch-humanist, and he takes all his power southward and camps himself at the gates of Jerusalem and says, I'm in charge. I'm in charge. I mean, where is God with that? And that's the psalm we sang last, Psalm 74. How can these things be? How can this happen to a covenanted nation? How can it happen in God's own church? The answer, I suppose you know, the answer is it's God's chastisement and discipline. Moses had actually said, when this nation was just forming in her youth, Moses had said to them that a king would arise up and deal with them just like this. You'll find it in Deuteronomy 28. If they didn't keep the law of God, if they didn't honor God, respect him, worship him, serve him, acknowledge him in all their ways. If they didn't walk holily, blamelessly, justly, then this would happen to them. And their chastisement becomes a captivity, or this captivity becomes a chastisement. Now, this is the first warning shot. I mean, the siege at Jerusalem is a warning shot. And at least Jeremiah is able to turn around and say, look, this is happening. But the fact of the matter was that the, the, the religious rulers inside Jerusalem said, no, it's not going to happen because God is always on our side. Notice, that's really plausible. <laughs> that's really, really plausible. We've got the temple. We've got the promises. 99% of the prophets are telling us it's all going to be fine. And Jeremiah says, it's not going to be fine at all. And the warning shot came with the siege. It also came with the captivity of the people, the brightest and the best. 
Yes. The fact is, yes, God was going to work in Babylon. God was going to undo a lot of the problems, but at the same time, Babylon was starting to suck away the people to itself. And the people who were left behind were really confused. Especially when Nebuchadnezzar came back a second time. And God said, there is none among the sons Jerusalem has brought forth to guide her. That's a sad statement. It's a church that's leaderless. I don't mean by that that there aren't people in positions of power. Yeah, that's fine. There always will be. But it's still leaderless. There was no moral, spiritual voice. There was no clear guidance. There was just this kind of blind belief that everything's going to be okay because God's on our side. The only voice, effectively, in any kind of influence was Jeremiah. And he ended up in a pit up to his armpits. The rest are useless and compromised. And in some ways, the captivity is symbolized by these temple vessels transferring from the temple of God into the temple of Marduk in Babylon. I want you to think about that captivity of the vessels before we even think about the captivity of the people. I want you to think about the captivity of the vessels and see it from Nebuchadnezzar's view and see it from Say, Daniel's view. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar does with the vessels. In verse 2, he takes some of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. He brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Now, his God is Marduk. You will remember from last week that Marduk comes from Nimrod, You have the same consonants, the same letters. Because Marduk, uh, Nimrod, eventually was idealized as uh, as the man, the hero. Heroes quickly become gods. You notice that? Heroes very quickly become gods. They almost imperceptibly become gods. People begin to idolize their heroes. And as the years passed, uh, they actually became uh, worshipped in that respect. Marduk is the heroic man. Idolatry always has man at its heart. Um, It doesn't matter how elaborate the system of idolatry. If you strip it away, it's all about man's power and glory. That's the key about Babylon, you see. Nebuchadnezzar is not really worshipping any other god but himself. That's quite plain. I suppose we'll look at it in chapter 4 when we get to it. But when one day he surveys the whole city, he says, Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built? He's not honoring Marduk with it. He's honoring himself. As we all do, you see. You've made your career. You've made your life. You've earned your wealth. You, you, you. You honor yourself. You don't honor God. You don't honor God who gave you the means, who gave you the life. As was said to Belshazzar the king in chapter 5, your breath is in his hand, but you don't acknowledge that either. Is this not Babylon the great that I have built? Nine-tenths, did I mention this last week, but nine-tenths of the bricks that have been found in Babylon are stamped with the name of Nebuchadnezzar on them. That's what Saddam Hussein was actually trying to replicate. His rebuilding program, which 
foundered to rebuild Babylon. He had his own name stamped on all the bricks, trying to be the Nebuchadnezzar III, effectively. It's all about self. But you'll notice what he does with the vessels. He takes the vessels, and he's quite content, you see, to keep them and to admire them and to put them in the treasure house of his God. Under his control, but on a par with the vessels that come from other temples and other religions elsewhere. Now, isn't that revealing? He doesn't despise them. You could say he honors them. But under his control and on his terms, that's humanism, you see. You will be tolerated. Your Christianity will be tolerated. But it will be tolerated on the same footing exactly as every other religion, which, by the way, is a footing below humanism. It must be in the humanistic temple that you all reside. You all learn in the humanistic temple. You will all exist as one in the humanistic temple. In the humanistic temple... That's the great arbitrator. That is the legislator. That is the power that decrees how much liberty you will have. Notice, he's quite content to have the vessels, but in their place, subject to me. It's a bit like the religious curriculum in school, is it not? God, of course, has been marginalized in the whole of the curriculum. Uh, There's no sense of God's presence in history anymore. I mean, are you taught that in history? Do do you see history like this? The Lord gave the king into his hand. No, you don't, because you're not taught to. You're not taught to. But God hasn't just been marginalized out of all these subjects and into the little box that we call religious education or whatever it's called right now, religious and moral education. You'll notice that even inside that little box, God has to share his place with others, does he not? He's on an absolutely equal footing with every other thing that can be called God or honored as God or honored as a prophet of any God, whether it's Confucius, Buddha, or Muhammad, or whatever. He's one of many. And he is subject to us. We say where he is in the curriculum. We put God in his little box along with other deities. We rule. So for Nebuchadnezzar, the vessels in his temple were essentially signs of the superiority of Babylon. For God's people, well, they were a sign of where they'd got, really. Confusion and shame. I'm sure every time these Jewish, this small initial group of Jewish exiles, who, who would have been something back in their own country, there's no doubt about that. I mean, Daniel and these people would have been important people eventually in Jerusalem, but uh, that didn't matter to them nonetheless. But every time they walked past this temple to Marduk, they thought, The vessels of the temple are in there. It's humiliation. 
it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like the way you felt, certainly the way I felt, probably the way you felt, when you saw the colours of the rainbow illuminating the House of Parliament recently. The rainbow, after all, is a sign of what? It's a sign of God's covenant. It's a sign of God's dispensation of grace and mercy in this world. That's what the rainbow is. I mean, every time it appears in the sky, it should speak to us. It's a, it's a sign of a covenant. Just as sure as bread and wine are signs of a covenant, so is the rainbow in the sky. It's a sign of God's covenant with the whole world, that he waits to be gracious and he will never flood the world again. That's what it's a symbol of. But it's not what it's a symbol of now, is it? I mean, the great Nimrod, the great humanism, has stretched its hand and taken that rainbow and made it a sign of something else. A sign of our freedom to live and behave just as we want to in Babylon. And the very raison d'etre of Babylon is to defy God and his law. And so the rainbow, which speaks of mercy and grace and kindness, illuminates the houses of parliament. It illuminates the White House. Amazing, isn't it? But in you, in your heart, if you know and love the Lord, you're devastated at that. The profound religious symbols that speak of God's greatness, majesty, honor, and kindness, and grace being snatched by the other side. It's something akin to that when you walk past the temple and you think of God's vessels inside there. Of course, um, there's a, a message to that, to Jerus in that to Jerusalem, and a message to us too in our church. I mean, if, if we persist in our rejection of God, we eventually lose the freedoms that, that we're supposed to be seeking. God gives you up to your idols. It's a golden rule. I mean, if, if you really want idols, if you really love money, and if you really love power and ambition, and if you're prepared to put these things in front of keeping the Sabbath day or uh, keeping God's name holy or whatever, if you're prepared to put these things first, God will give you over to your idolatry. I mean, he'll let you go. I'm not saying he'll let you go forever. If you're God's child, he'll take you back but only through a process of discovering that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have sinned against the Lord. When Israel made the golden calf, when Moses destroyed it, we're told that he ground it into powder and that he scattered it into drink, that he made them drink. A symbolic act. You taste your own idolatry. You live by it. You reap its fruit. You can't but... God will leave you and your children to reap the fruits of your bad choices. Do you remember when Israel wanted meat in the wilderness? I mean, God, God was giving them, God was giving them manna, wonderful food daily. They had other things to eat too, but they had this manna, which was a, a powerful symbol from God of all that he was to them. And they were to eat that until they got into the land full of milk and honey. But they wanted meat, you see. And day after day, they started to want meat, meat. Other people have meat. We remembered we used to have meat in Egypt. Why can't we have meat? And eventually, I mean, God bore with that for a while, but eventually God said to them, you want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you meat every day. I'll give you meat, he says, until your nostrils are full of it. 
I'll give you meat until you're sick of it. I'll give you meat until you can't stand the stuff. Read it for yourself in Numbers chapter 11. That is effectively what happens with this kind of thing too. You want to break the Sabbath? You want to live like the other nations? Well, take it then and discover the pain and the grief that goes along with it. Because when you sell yourself to the world, when you follow the humanistic agenda, it'll squeeze the life out of you. It'll squeeze the pips out of you. It'll make your life a misery and a drudge. Only through that will you acknowledge what a fool you have been. Now, God didn't send these young men to Babylon without encouragement and preparation. Um, God's always a step ahead. He's always a step ahead. Uh, He doesn't just take four young godly men here and just expose them to this and just leave them to sink or swim. What what was it that enabled them to, to come into Babylon and not be crushed? Well, I think the answer lies in their religious experience as children. They grew up in Josiah's Reformation. He was the last good king. It was in Josiah's reign um, that they were born, and it was in Josiah's reign that the book of the law was rediscovered. There's there's a message in that. I mean, how it was lost, it's almost unthinkable. Um, Like in one way, they knew the word of God, and in another way, it was lost. It pretty much describes where we're at, really. I mean, the word of God's all over the place. How many copies of it are in here? In another way, it's lost. It was rediscovered and reapplied in Josiah's day. And these four young men grew up in a Jerusalem that was reforming and happy with the blessing of God upon it, at least for a time. But by the time they had uh, just reached, you know, seven, eight, nine, there was a change. A declension had set in. And... uh, Jeremiah was the only prophet who was speaking against it. But you see, these young boys would have been amongst the people who were listening to Jeremiah's. They were grieved when Jeremiah was mistreated, maltreated, when he wasn't heard and so on. They were grieved and and they believed what Jeremiah said. And what did Jeremiah say? That a power is coming from the north. In other words, they're not surprised when God's chastisement comes. They're not surprised. There's a verse that tells us in Psalm 25 that the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him and he will show to them his covenant. How true that is. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. He will show them his covenant. Um, When terrible catastrophes come, those who are truly the Lord's and who are walking close to him function as a remnant who just have an understanding of the times. They're not overwhelmed like others. There are other Christians who are half asleep and they haven't a clue what's going on. But those who are really vigilant with the Lord, they know. There's a voice with them. There's a guidance with them. The Spirit of the Lord is with them and it just helps them to be calm, to be still, and to know that I am God. Forewarned. 
Would you be surprised if God raised up another nation against our own? Would you be surprised if an alien power suddenly took over in this country and took away some of the things that we've had for years and years and years because of our covenanted heritage? I wouldn't be one whit surprised. I suppose what did surprise them, though, and it's the most difficult thing, is the extent to which they were called to suffer themselves. And how mysterious are God's ways in these things? I mean, you might have thought, well, as young boys, they would have thought, well, whatever's going to happen in this city, God's going to watch over us anyway. I mean, we're looking to him. We're in the group that are serving him and honoring him, so God will find some way of preserving us. I suppose the last thing they expected was that they would be whipped out, just dislocated from parents, from family, from relatives, and just taken away to the citadel, to the heart of Babylon. Shock, really. (laughs) And we sometimes wonder why God does things like that. I mean, in Jacob's own family... There was only one that knew and served the Lord, Joseph. And God was going to use Joseph to be a means of blessing to his brothers, yes. But Joseph didn't expect what that involved, did he? He didn't expect to be nearly butchered, betrayed, sold as a slave into Egypt, to be rotting in a dungeon for years. He didn't expect any of that. Surely he had expected someone to be exempt from all that because he knew and loved the Lord. Them that honor me, will I not honor? Yeah, but that doesn't always happen quite the way you think. Sometimes it involves pain. I mean, I had reason to say this to someone recently in connection with the Sabbath day because we have to be very careful that we don't say to our children that if they make some kind of stand for the Sabbath, there's immediate promotion afterwards doesn't always work like that. It most certainly will be true that God will honor any stand you take for any of his commandments, but it may take pain first of all. So, I mean, if it was going to be automatically the other way around, there wouldn't be much sacrifice anyway, would there? So we just have to recognize that that's the way it works. But that would be a shock to them. They did not expect to be herded out and brought into captivity to Babylon. How mysterious are God's ways? Why us? And what sense does it make? And if you picture these four young men and the others with them, and I'm finishing this, if you, with this, if, if you think of them coming into Babylon for the first time, no, they've never seen anything like this. I mean, they've never seen anything like this. Uh, Jerusalem was a, an outstanding enough city in her own way, but nothing comparable to Babylon. Probably brought in through the famous Ishtar Gate, which is which was the greatest of all the gates in Babylon. Now, if if you're ever visiting Berlin, uh, you can see the Ishtar Gate reconstructed, just exactly as it was in Nebuchadnezzar's day, and it's very, very imposing. I would guess that the king would make sure that these people who are going to be brainwashed into Babylon's ways are brought through the most imposing gate. Would you not? Maybe it doesn't say much for me, but if I was him, I would. If I wanted to um, thoroughly Babylonianize them, I'd say, I'll take them through this gate, a gate they've never seen, uh, like they've never seen before. And as they pass through it, and uh, as they look at the Tower of Babel, uh, this imposing tower that stretches up 
into the sky. I mean, it must feel really, really defeated, you know, like crushed. I mean, who are they? Everything around them is preaching the power of humanism. It's preaching the success of mankind and his achievements. And everything they had seemed so small. The only relics that remind them of it are tucked up inside a temple that's to the honor of man and Marduk. But in that hour, uh, he's got to remember his name, Daniel, that God is my judge. God has done this. God is ruling. God is protecting. And God is delivering, too. That's what kept them. Sometimes for ourselves, too, that's all we've got, right? We can't see anything else. That's all we've got. Just the belief that God is good and that God is doing good. When everything around you looks to the contrary, God is good, God is doing good, and God is victorious and will deliver me too. It's as well they believe that because before long they're going to be specially selected and the pressure really ramps up. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we bless you for writing thousands of years ago things that are so helpful to ourselves. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us in the situations we find ourselves in today. We acknowledge that we are in the midst of Babylon. And we pray that you would help us to be strong and consistent in it. And if we have received good teaching, and if we know you to be the true God and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, help us not to faint, even if others faint and fail. And surrounded as we are by monuments to the success and glory of man and the desire to eradicate God from our history and our syllabus, we pray that you would help us to remember, to believe that you sit upon the floods, that you are still enthroned, and your counsel will come to pass, for Jerusalem will prevail, and the system of anti-Christianity shall be destroyed. Deliver men and women from its bondage. We pray to see a better captivity, when those who are bound in Babylon escape and find themselves in the glorious liberty of Jerusalem under the benign and glorious rule of King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our last psalm is Psalm 137. On page 430, and we sing to the tune Babel Streams, or Babylon Streams. This small group of initial exiles were joined, of course, by vast numbers later, and they used to gather at the streams that ran through Babylon, the, the great river Euphrates. 
uh, went north and south through the city, just like the River Clyde cuts through Glasgow, the Euphrates cut through Babylon, and the tributary streams were places where the people of God gathered. Remembering the past, by Babel streams we sat and wept when Zion we thought on. In midst thereof we hanged our harps, the willow trees upon. They had stopped praising. They, they were too depressed. For there a song required they who did us captive bring. Our spoilers called for mirth, joy, laughter, and said, A song of Sion sing. And that's really persecuting, actually. That's all that is. The response, Oh, how the Lord's song shall we sing within a foreign land. You could say within a foreign system and a culture. And then suddenly he checks himself. If thee, Jerusalem, I forget, skill, part from my right hand. In other words, I'll do nothing if I don't praise you. My tongue to my mouth's roof let cleave. If I do thee forget, Jerusalem, and thee above my chief joy do not set. I think um, we're to understand from that that they took their harps back down and started praising God in Babylon too. Verses 1 to 6, let's stand to sing. grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.